Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 11, please. John chapter 11. I'd like to say thank you to Pastor Gaddis for the opportunity to preach this morning. I'd like to say also that if you are visiting uh, today, that would challenge you to come back Wednesday night or next Sunday and hear our pastor preach. You'll be blessed by that and I uh, hope that you would do so. I want to also take the opportunity on behalf of my wife and I just to express our deep appreciation to our church family for your support and love and encouragement over the last six months since finding out that she has cancer and going through this uh, together and uh, the many just overwhelming uh, amounts of personal encouragement that have come our way from our church family has been such a blessing. She rang the bell a couple of weeks ago after 24 weeks of chemo. We're thankful for that. And um, just very thankful for my wife and her wonderful spirit, her faithfulness to the Lord through all of this. I uh, haven't really said much publicly about it. I, I told her, I said, this is your sermon to preach. And uh, she's been preaching it day after day with just her wonderful spirit, her faithfulness to the Lord. And it's been a blessing. John chapter 11 we begin reading in verse 17 and go down to verse 27 and then just leave your Bibles open. We're going to go through much of this chapter in our message this morning. Verse 17 says, Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the word. I want to speak to you this morning on Believest Thou This? Or Will We Trust That God Has a Purpose Greater Than Our Understanding? Will We Trust That God Has a Purpose Greater Than Our Understanding? Father, I pray this morning that as we consider this wonderful passage in John's Gospel, that the Spirit of God would illuminate our minds. <clears throat> I pray that you'd help me as I speak to be a blessing and a help. I pray the Spirit of God would work in our hearts. If someone here is not saved, I pray that today be the day when they understand the gospel and they trust Christ as Savior. And I pray for your born-again people that you'd help us when we face adversities, questions, things that would shake our faith or cause us to doubt. Help us to draw nigh to Thee, to as Mary did, to cast ourselves at Your feet and to trust that You have a greater purpose. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> when we come to John chapter 11, we're in the final months of the Lord's ministry. In John 7, 8, 9, and 10, he was at the Feast of Tabernacles, which was in the, in the fall season around October. 
Then John 10 ends with the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah in December. And in John 12, we come to the Passover, which is in April. So we're between December and April, the last few months of the Lord's public ministry before going to the cross to die for our sins. By the way, he was the last Passover, Christ, our eternal Passover, and there's no longer any need for a Passover uh, to be slain for us. So when John 11 begins, we find Jesus down by the Jordan River in the region called Perea. Look at chapter 10 and verse number 40 and 41. Chapter 10, verse 40 says, And went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true, and many believed on him there. So if you can picture in your mind the basic geography of Israel, you have the Jordan River coming right down the, the edge of it to the Dead Sea. And on the, le- on the western side, you've got Judea and Samaria. And on the eastern side, you would have uh, Perea, uh, kind of north, uh, well, almost directly east of Jerusalem. And Jesus has gone down to that region where John first baptized, and he will spend the last few months ministering in that particular region. Now in verse 1 it says, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany. Now Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem, but it's about 25 to 30 miles away from where Jesus was at that time. And no easy journey because Bethany and Jerusalem was up in the mountains and uh, Perea, the Jordan River down in the valley. And uh, so even though about 25, 30 miles would have been about an 8 to 13 hour walk. Now that's, that's quite a distance. And of course, faster going downhill than up. Uh, but Google Maps has an interesting uh, application where you can actually go to places in Israel, find the current location, drop a pin, find the distance, and actually just click on walking. And it will tell you about the approximate distance and about how long it would take walking from one place to the other. And according to Google Maps, this was about a 13-hour about a walk. 13-hour walk. And so an entire day would be spent traveling to, from Bethany to the Jordan River and another day traveling all the way back. And uh, that's considering that someone is a fast walker and not me. <laughs> I, I would have been going down to Enterprise, run a camel or something, honestly. I, some of you have those stickers on your car. This is 26.2. Others of you have 13.1. Mine would be 0.0, amen. But I'm just thinking that Jesus down in the valley, the, uh, the, uh, Martha and Mary up in the mountains and sending a courier down uh, to meet Jesus and then for Jesus to then travel back to where they were was quite an endeavor, quite a distance to travel. Now this, this sets the scene for one of the greatest miracles in the Bible, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. In John's gospel, there are seven sign miracles that are presented from the turning of well water to wine in chapter 2 to the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11 prior to the resurrection of Jesus that are given by the Holy Spirit of God to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that if you believe on Him, you'll have life, uh, in, uh, have salvation and have eternal life through His name. Amen? And so these miracles are given to show His deity, His, uh, his Messiahship, His authority, and His power to show that we can trust in Him as our Savior and be saved. All right, so in chapter 11, you have the resurrection of Lazarus. I'm just going to give you three main points 
this morning. Consider first Lazarus's sickness, his sickness in verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, uh, and her sister Martha. Now, Lazarus is sick, and uh, the Greek word seems to imply that he's wasting away. And we know that it was serious for one simple reason. He died. Deep, isn't it? Amen. That's why I'm on the Bible faculty at Heartland to figure out things like this. But he was sick and he had wasted away and he's, he's, now, he's at the point of death and he does in fact die. And so Mary and Martha, concerned about their brother, sent an urgent prayer telegram by courier to Jesus. Just eight words. Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Just eight words. I'm sure just grabbed a courier, said, get this message to Jesus. He's down in Perea, down by the Jordan River. Go find him. Deliver this message to him as quickly as possible. My brother is dying. I've got to get this to Jesus. And so eight words and quickly send him away. Lord, he whom thou lovest doesn't even name him. He just, he's to know who it is. He whom thou lovest is sick and doesn't even ask for Jesus to do anything. It's simply implied. He whom thou lovest is sick. We know you can do something about it. Now, 8 to 13 hour walk. If it's a, young, if it's a courier, maybe faster, but it takes uh, much of the day. You can't travel at night. just gets much of the day to get down to Jesus. But I, got, I have to say this, that Jesus didn't need a telegram to know what was going on. Okay. We're talking about the omniscient Son of God who knows exactly what is taking place, but He also knows what no one else knows about this situation. That's in verse 4. He said, when Jesus heard that, He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So Jesus knows not only the, the situation, but how it will end, and the purpose behind all of this, which is for the glory of God, and that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Isn't that a blessing? He loved them. And they knew He loved them. That's why in their eight-word telegram they said, He whom thou lovest. They knew that Jesus loved them. They knew that Jesus loved their brother. They knew that He loved them despite the sickness that was ravaging their brother. They understood that Jesus loved them. Now, That faith is going to be tested. Some of you have been singing, Jesus loves me, this I know for, the Bible tells me so, since you were a Nehido grasshopper. You've grown up in church, you've grown up with the understanding of the love of God and that God loves you and this is part of your, your core memories, the fact that Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves all the little children, all the little children of the, of the world. And if I were to ask you, does Jesus love you this morning? You say, yes, Jesus loves me. John 3, 16, I know Jesus loves me. But there may come a time when that statement is called into question. 
Does he really love me when my brother is lying dying? Does he really love me when my brother takes his last breath? Does he really love me when my prayer request seems to go unanswered? Does he really love me when Jesus then tarries uh, for two extra days and doesn't even show up for the funeral and gets there after he's already been in the grave for four days? Does he really love me? Your love or his love for you may come into question at some point in your Christian life. You may doubt it way down in the depths of your soul. And let's be honest this morning. Deep down inside, we sometimes have the idea that if we love Jesus and Jesus loves us, then we won't have to deal with this sort of thing in our lives. Man, if I, I love the Lord and I serve Him and I know He loves me, and that's just kind of going to give me an exemption from a lot of that inheritance that Grandpa Adam passed down to us. You know, Grandpa Adam passed us an inheritance of death, and decay, and disorder, distress. Grandpa Adam, when he sinned, brought death into the world and the suffering we see around us is the consequences of sin and the reverberating consequences of sin. And sometimes we think that, man, because I'm saved and I love the Lord and He loves me, that these sorts of things are going to bother the unsaved, but they're not going to bother me. But, the, but nothing in the Bible teaches us that getting saved or loving the Lord exempts us from all difficulties or hardships or suffering. You don't read that in the Bible. Yes, He gives us life and life more abundantly. Amen. I'm glad I'm saved. I got saved at age 15. I, I remember what it was like to not be saved, and I know what it is to be saved. I'll tell you something. My worst day as a saved person is better than my best day as a lost person. And He has given life and life more abundant, but that does not mean that I or any of us are exempt from sickness or hardship or un the unexpected or sorrow or difficulty. But I do know this, I'd rather face any of that with Him than without Him. The fact is, though, that there's more than a few people out of church this morning I mean church members and deacons and preachers and preachers' wives, and preachers' kids, and people that have had the benefit of growing up in church, but they're out of church today, and they're angry, and they're bitter, and they're resentful, and because they thought their relationship with God was, would exempt them from any sort of sickness or sorrow, and then when those things came into their life, they became resentful and bitter and angry because God did not do what they thought God should do in their circumstances. Brother Sam Davison preached a great message at Alumni Days this week about how important it is that we think according to the Bible. And because when, we, when things don't go the way we thought they would go, sometimes we respond improperly to that. So people are mad at God, and I just have to say it is silly to be mad at God. God does no wrong. He's righteous in all His ways. You and I are not to sit in judgment on God. We're to trust God and love God and know that God loves us. The circumstances of our lives do not change those facts. Let's move a little further in the narrative because it's going to get a little worse. In John 11, notice in verse 6, it says, When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, 
he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. So after hurrying this courier off, go get to him as fast as you can. Eight word message. He whom thou lovest is sick. Jesus receives that message, says it is, it is for the glory of God. And then two more days, he just stays where he is. Verse 11 says, These things saith him, I'm just going to skip down a little bit. After that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may go awake him out of his sleep. And of course the disciples like us so often are not really understanding the spiritual importance of what Jesus is saying. And they said to his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he should do well. If he's just sleeping, it's fine. I mean, why, why should we go risk our lives going into Judea just so we can wake Lazarus up? That was their mindset. Verse 13, Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let's go unto him. So we discuss Lazarus' sickness. Now notice number two, Lazarus' sisters. Lazarus' sisters. Now they're coming to town. 30-mile trek uphill. They arrive in Bethany. Verse 17 says, Now when Jesus came, He found that He had lain in the grave four days already. Four days in the grave. What does this mean from Martha and Mary's perspective? It means that Jesus could have healed him in prayer, but didn't. Folks, it would not have been the only time that Jesus just spoke the word and healed someone from a distance. It's not like Jesus had to be there in person to heal Lazarus. It means that Lazarus died. It means that Jesus arrived later than he was expected. Can you imagine that if the funeral had been on Thursday, that they, or he'd been, he'd been laid in the grave on Monday, now it's Tuesday, now it's Wednesday, now it's Thursday, where's Jesus? It means that Jesus missed the funeral which is okay because every time Jesus went to a funeral, he ended up breaking it up by raising the dead anyway. But, <laughs> but can you imagine that day after day just wondering where is Jesus? Why didn't Jesus do something? Why didn't he respond? Why didn't he heal? Why didn't he perform a miracle? He does miracles all the time for strangers. Why wouldn't he do a miracle for us? You come to verse 20, you find the two sisters, Martha and Mary, and their different response or the different way in which they are grieving. And Martha and Mary are fascinating study just by themselves and the differences between these two sisters and how they responded to things. But I just want us to focus on Martha for the moment. Look at verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. J. Vernon McGee said that Martha always seems to be the aggressive type. <laughs> she is the woman of action. That's not a bad thing, just pointing this out. She reveals a wonderful faith, but also an impatience and a lack of bending to the will of God. So she hears that Jesus is coming. He's outside of town. She immediately leaves and rushes out to meet him. And notice the first words out of her mouth in verse 21. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. 
Do we have any question what's on Martha's mind? Why didn't you answer our prayer? Why has it taken you so long to get here? Why is my brother dead in a grave when you could have healed him? But then she says, but I know that even now, if you'll just ask, God will give you whatever you ask. So you see this doubt and faith struggling in Martha. Have you ever had times in your Christian life where faith and doubt are struggling? I know this is what the Bible says, but man, this is how I feel. And how I feel based on what I can see right now is struggling with what I know the Bible says. And they're wrestling with each other. Which will come out on top? Are you going to end up bitter and angry and out of church and resentful and hateful toward God? Or is your faith going to win out and you're going to draw close to God and end up on the right side of this matter? It's going to come down to whether your faith or your doubt is successful in that wrestling match. Look at verse number 23. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that. <laughs> Isn't that essentially what she's saying? I know that he's going to rise in the last day at the resurrection. The Jews understood that there was a resurrection in the future, that all the dead would be raised. And she said, I know that he's going to be resurrected in the far distant future in the last day. I'm much more concerned about right now. And so in verse 25, Jesus said unto her, got to love this, folks. This is one of the I, I am statements in John. Only God could make this statement. Amen. No mere man could make these I am statements of Jesus Christ. And so he said unto her, I am the resurrection. The resurrection is not something off some far distant hazy future. The resurrection is standing right here in front of you. Amen. Amen. I am the resurrection and the life. And so in one statement, Jesus took a vague, hazy concept of eternal life and made it crystal clear and personal. I am the resurrection. Those who have believed in me, I am everlasting life. I am the resurrection. So Lazarus was a man who had believed in Jesus Christ and Though he were dead, you know, notice what it says in verse 25, uh, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Well, someone might read that and say, well, Brother Asbury, that's not true because Lazarus has died. And here Jesus said, he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Well, here's the distinction between a lost person and a born again person. When a saved person dies, it's just the body that dies. Amen. This tabernacle, you know, when God describes our bodies, He doesn't compare them to stone citadels that are going to last a thousand years. Amen. Our bodies are tents, good for one lifetime, and that's it. And they, are, they deteriorate and they wear out, and eventually... They expire. But it's the body that dies, not the soul. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so that's why when Jesus said, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, he was simply referring to the fact that his physical nature, his body, 
was asleep. It was dead in the tomb. But that does not mean that Lazarus had ceased to exist or that he was dead somewhere. No, he was very much alive. The saved person is saved. They are alive. But the lost person is dead spiritually in their trespasses and sins. When a saved person dies, they're absent from the body, present with the Lord, eternal life forever. But when a lost person dies, their soul goes to hell, where they die endlessly. Not death in the sense of ceasing to exist or being annihilated, but simply separated from God forever and ever and ever and ever. So while the saved person is living forever, the lost person is dying forever. Oh, my friend, it does matter whether you're saved or not. And if you had never been saved, I, the Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but God loved us and sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. And they buried Him and three days later He rose from the dead. And if you'll believe upon Him, trust Him as your personal Savior, you'll be saved. You've got to understand there's a vast difference between a lost person and a saved person. A saved person is alive unto God. They've been born again. But a lost person is dead in their trespasses and sins. And so Jesus said, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The, the old evangelist D.L. Moody wrote this in his autobiography. Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of North Eastfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I should be more alive than I am now. <laughs> Isn't that good? Now, here's in verse 26. Here is the key to my entire message this morning. He says, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now he asks her a question. She had, she's made a statement to him. Now he's going to put her on the spot and ask her something. He says, Believest thou this? There's going to come a point where you need to decide if you believe it or not. A great sorrow has come into your life. Things have not gone the way that you thought they would. Prayer requests seem to have gone, gone unanswered. Have you now become an unbeliever because of circumstances or do you still believe this? Now, I'm not saying a saved person can lose their salvation. I'm talking about saved people that are now living a, living a life angry at God, mad at God, basically living like an unbeliever even though they are saved. Let me tell you something, folks. There comes a point when we have to, our faith will be tried and tested. Now, I want you to notice Martha's confession of faith in verse 27. Can you picture her with tears running down her face? Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Does that remind you of anyone else's confession of faith? Remember in Matthew 16, Pastor was just there for a couple of weeks, uh, not too long ago, and how Jesus took His disciples up to the northern part of Israel, the Golan Heights, what they're called today, the, the hills, uh, the foothills leading up to Mount Hermon. And, and uh, it's a beautiful area. I've had the privilege to go there. I've been to the Benias Springs that feed the Jordan River and been to that place where they had all these idols and the, to the worship of Pan or Pan. And uh, it is a beautiful area. In fact, I, I'm so excited for Pastor getting to go, finally, finally getting to go to Israel next spring I would pay to go just to watch him go. 
I, I don't think he's going to sleep the entire time he's there. I, I would just watch him because I think he's going to be like a kid in a candy store <laughs> everywhere they're at in Israel. And uh, that's going to be awesome for them. And he's going to come back different. Amen. And uh, so excited for them. And, but you, you, you picture this in your mind. And it's a beautiful hill country. You, you're rising up towards Mount Hermon, which is snow-covered. The only snow-covered mountain in that area. And the snow melts. And, and, and goes down through the rocks and then comes out in these various springs uh, that feed the Jordan River. And so it's a very lush, beautiful area, not desert at all. And uh, so we took him to Caesarea Philippi where these idols were worshipped and the gates, of, it was called the gates of hell uh, in that particular location. And you can see there, he's talking with his disciples, just them separated from the crowds in this beautiful location. And he says, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus said, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter, you got to love Peter, always ready to step up, answer the questions, amen. Sometimes even answering when no one asks, but that's okay. And, and so Peter steps up and he says, we believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God that should come into the world. And so he, he uh, excuse me, he says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a great statement of faith, Amen. We believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, I think that's great, and it's wonderful for Peter to say that. But I want to contrast these two scenes of one man with his best friends and the Lord Jesus in this beautiful uh, setting with the river waters flowing by and the mountains in the background with just him and Jesus and his best friends, the disciples. I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And can I say that it's a little bit different when you're standing out on the, uh, the hillside and your brother's been dead for four days and Jesus didn't answer your prayer request and you don't understand what's going on. You don't understand why Jesus didn't heal him. You don't understand why, why these things are taking place. And to still say with tears in your eyes, yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's one thing to confess your faith here in church, and we should. Wouldn't take away anything from that. But when your loved one is sick and there's nothing you can do about it, and prayers don't seem to get answered, and death comes unexpectedly, and Jesus doesn't show up at the funeral, and your brother's been dead for four days, and you stand there and declare, Yea, Lord, I believe. To me, that's quite a statement of faith. Would you agree? And when you can stand there at a graveside, maybe bearing a little bitty casket, or your parents, or your spouse, or your child. When you stand by a sickbed and know that the end is nigh. When you sit at the doctor's office and he very professionally tells you, I have bad news. And then begins to explain what you're going to be dealing with for the next six months or perhaps even for the rest of your life. When you're sitting in the cancer center hooked up to an IV having all sorts of strange chemicals pumped through your body. Or when you find out that your grown daughter is killed in a car accident. And then you can still stand there and the Lord says, Believest thou this? And you can still say with tears in your eyes, Yea, Lord, I believe. Because circumstances don't change who God is. And though I'd like to think that my relationship with God 
does bring manifold blessings. And I have no doubt that I'm going to get to heaven and find out that serving Him and following Him has caused me to miss out on a lot of heartache that would have come my way. It's unreasonable and unbiblical to think that there's no heartache going to come my way. Because I have an inheritance from Grandpa Adam too. So we see Lazarus' sickness and then his sisters. Notice thirdly, Lazarus' Savior. I want you to notice verse 33. He says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, this is talking about Mary. We're going to come back to Mary in a minute. Saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now hold on a second. He knows what's happening. Think about this. He knows where this is going. He knows within just a few minutes he's going to say, Lazarus, come forth. And all these tears of sorrow are going to be replaced with tears of joy. And yet knowing what's going to take place, he's still groaning in his spirit because of the heartache and the sorrow that people are feeling. He's not just our Savior. He is our sympathetic Savior. He groaned in the spirit and he was troubled. And verse 34 says, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus, why are you weeping? You know he's okay. You know he's in heaven. You know you're about to resurrect him. You know that in John 12, you're all going to be sitting around the table eating dinner together and everyone's going to be happy again. Why are you weeping? He's weeping because he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That our sorrow is his sorrow, that he knows what it is to hurt and to enter into our sorrows with us. We're tempted sometimes to wonder if Jesus cares about us in times like this. But let me remind you that he's the one that left heaven to come down here to this earth to be with us. That he is called the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. There is no grief that he has not made the acquaintance of. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. On one trip to Israel, our tour guide took us to a place in Jerusalem where they have a scale model of the temple complex, or actually the entire city of Jerusalem in the first century, the time of Christ. And so very fascinating to walk around. It's a massive uh, uh, I don't know, what to, it's just a model, massive model of the city. You can see the temple and, and how the geography lays out and where the buildings were and the, where the priest quarters were, where, uh, where the, the Romans were. And uh, it's really quite fascinating. So he's walking us through parts of this and just pointing things out. And he pointed out the high priest's palace. <clears throat> the priest had their own quarter of the city. The high priest had his own palace in the city. And connecting the palace to the temple was an, a, an elevated walkway. Okay? An elevated walkway connecting his house to the house of God. And he pointed out that the, all the Jews would ever see of their high priest was him walking across on this, on this elevated walkway. That They never shook hands. They didn't rub shoulders with him. He's way up there on this elevated walkway and they're way down here. And all they could see him is he's passing by and he's he, going from his extremely wealthy palace to the, to, his, to the temple and back, totally untouched by the masses beneath him. But then Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest like that. We don't have a high priest that was way up here and we're down, way down there. 
We have a high priest that left here and came down here and walked shoulder to shoulder with the masses, with the people. Who was born to an impoverished family and laid in a manger uh, and, and hated and despised and, and grew up in the poor side of town. Grew up working with his hands under Joseph, his stepfather. and A man who knew what it was to be acquainted with grief in all of its manifold aspects. And who is not, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And so we read how he groaned, how he came to the temple or the, 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 the tomb, excuse me, of Lazarus. And he's weeping and the people are seeing him weep and they're saying, behold, how he loved him. Can I tell you, folks, this morning that when you're wrestling between faith and doubt, just remember how much he loved you to come down here and suffer with us. And now I didn't read this last verse, but see, and on the basis of the fact that he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities, let us therefore come boldly in the throne of grace. I'm not going to go to him with a problem he has not experienced. And yes, in my flesh, I'd like to just take all my problems away, but that's not going to happen. But I'll tell you what, he'll walk with me in my problems and I can bring them to him and know that he understands and has sympathy. So in verse 38, let's read the conclusion of this, because way back in the beginning, we, we knew Jesus knew how this is going to end. So in verse 38, it says, Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Martha, here's Martha again, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. One of my favorite, I'll never give up my King James Bible as long as I've got that. I'm I'm sorry, my family knows it's one of my, that stinketh, that's one of my favorite expressions. <laughs> Lord, by this time he stinketh. In other words, by this point, he's been in the tomb, corruption has set in. Amen. Corruption has set in. The Jews had, a mind, had an idea, it's not biblical, but they had the idea that after a person died, their spirit kind of hovered around their body for up to three days. But after the fourth day, there's no point. And so that was an idea that they had. It's not a biblical idea. but So, Lord, there's no point. By this time, the corruption set in. He's been dead four days. Verse 40, Jesus said, Then her said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, if Jesus had not been specific... If he had just said, come forth, every dead body on earth would have risen. <laughs> so he's specific, Lazarus, come forth. And it says in verse 44, he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. And so Lazarus raised from the dead. He's not glorified. He's going to have to die again eventually. But at this point, he's restored to life. He's resurrected. And uh, they take the grave clothes away. Not like Jesus. When he rose again, he rose glorified, never to die again. Amen. But he comes forth. Can you just imagine the scene? The people's jaws hitting the ground. The, the tears turning to tears of joy. Uh, the amazement at what Jesus has done. But didn't Jesus say way back in the beginning of the chapter, that this would be to the glory of God and the glory of God's Son. Look at verse 45. Let's see some of the outcome of this or some of the fallout of this. 
Verse 45 says, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on Him. So, folks are getting saved. Is it worth a few days of sorrow for you for people to get saved? Man, this is a whole week of misery. Yeah, but folks got saved. Is that worth it to you? Go over to chapter 12 and verse 9. We'll see some further fallout. Chapter 12, verse 9. <clears throat> Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they that might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. What if, what if you gave your sorrow to God, and God used it to see people saved? Would that be, would that be something? What if the events in our lives God has a greater purpose for than just us? What if they are actually for other people to come to know Christ as their Savior? Are we going to trust God to know what He's doing? That's the bottom line. Are we going to trust God to know what He's doing? Now, let me wrap this up. Go back to chapter 11, verse 32. I want you to, we, we skipped over Mary, but I want you to see Mary for a moment. We talked about Martha and her statement of faith, her wrestling with doubt and, and with faith. But I want you to see Mary in verse 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, notice, she fell down at his feet. She fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. She said exactly what Martha said, but from a different perspective. She said it at his feet. What do you do when you don't understand what's going on? Fall at His feet. Fall at His feet. Trust that He has a purpose greater than our understanding. You know, there was another time that people did not understand God's purpose at the time. Within a few weeks of this event, the Son of God was betrayed, falsely tried, falsely condemned, beaten, spit upon, scourged, nailed to a cross, and as His disciples fled... He died for the sins of the whole world. And no one at the time understood what was taking place. And for three days, the disciples are hiding behind locked doors for fear. But then on Sunday morning, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and suddenly everything made sense. That God had a purpose for the life, death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. And that was to provide salvation for all who will believe. And so please understand that if you've come this morning, perhaps as a visitor... You've never really, you've never been saved. You don't know what that means. I just want you to understand that God has a plan for you. He has a purpose for your life and He wants you to be saved. He, has, he sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins and He offers salvation as a free gift if you'll simply receive it by faith. Let me say this and I'll be done. If you're hurting down deep inside this morning, perhaps your heart and mind are filled with why or why not. And you know what the Bible says, but you also know how you feel about this right now. And it's a real struggle. Or perhaps you gave up on this a long time ago and you're just angry and resentful about something and bitter. Maybe you're still in church, but man, something is, is cold and hard in your heart because something has taken place and you didn't understand why and you're resentful towards God about that. Can I challenge you to do as Mary did and bring that to the Lord and just fall at His feet? and trust Him. 
You don't have to carry that burden another day. You can bring all of that and you'll find that God has his arms open wide to receive you and to help you with that need. Father, I pray this morning that you please bless these thoughts. Help us to consider the great truths in this chapter, how they apply to us. Maybe someone here this morning is struggling. Maybe someone in here is angry, resentful. Perhaps they've come to church one time just to give you a chance to speak to them. And maybe down deep inside, there's just some old bitterness. Father, I pray that you'd work now in our hearts. Pray the Spirit of God would move here this morning. If there's someone here that's not saved, I pray that today they would come forward and trust Christ as their Savior. And I pray that you would get all the glory out of what is done this invitation time. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. As the invitation song is played, if you've never been saved, why not come forward tonight and let, or this morning? Let one of these men or ladies show you how to be saved from the Word of God. If you have a burden, why not bring it down and cast it at Jesus' feet as the song is sung?